Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello there, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Sessions. And today I'm so excited to actually be in studio with Amy Tangerine. Amy, thanks for having us. Thanks for coming over. Absolutely. And her website and her Instagram match her house, you guys. It's crazy. And her studio. We were in the back checking out everything. And this is truly how this person lives. It's awesome. A very colorful life. Amy, tell us a little bit, because if we're on your website, there are so many things that you do. So tell us a little bit about kind of the Amy Tangerine platform or platforms. Yeah. So it's a creative lifestyle brand. I think the goal and my mission is to empower women everywhere to feel joy and confidence through creativity. And sometimes that comes in the form of scrapbooking products. Sometimes it comes in the form of t-shirts. And there's just so many different aspects of creativity and how we can feel fulfilled in our lives. And I want to make sure to inspire that in people. Well, having just spent a few minutes with you watercoloring in your studio, I get it. I totally get how you do that. Because this isn't something that you saw probably growing up. You had to sort of cobble this together and say, I think this thing needs to exist in the world. What in you was inspired to do this or was impacted by something else that led to this? I think growing up, because I was an only child and my parents immigrated from India in 1970, and I was born in 78. I'm just going to reveal my age yes, because yes. we're at that point where we can do that in yes. our lives, right? And I really, to be honest with you, I think that I was fending off boredom for a long time mm. because because I was an only child and I didn't have, let's say, siblings to play with. My parents were telling me, oh, go do something, go make something, find a project. So I would fill my time with making things up. And I think that that sort of fueled my love for taking something and making it into something else, transforming it and seeing it come to fruition in a way that maybe nobody else had thought of or wasn't really doing that way. Because in art classes, I would see something and I would be into the project at first, but then I'd always want to change it and make it my own. And I didn't realize that at the time that everybody didn't think that way. Hmm. You know, everybody didn't think that they could veer from the norm. It was sort of, this is what I'm supposed to do. These are the directions I've been given. And not everybody has that instinctual desire to to go off the beaten path. Yeah, and to see it a different way. And my parents actually encouraged that in me. They said that I could do anything I put my mind and my heart into. And that was a really big... I think part of my growing up was it was instilled in me the value of entrepreneurship and you can make something happen out of nothing. Because to them, their success story was even just getting out of India, coming to the States and getting a job and raising a family and having buying a house. You know, yeah. those are all yeah. part of their American dream. So they wanted to make sure that I understood that whatever vision I had for myself, it could be cultivated. 
there were certain rules to follow. I had to go to college. That was a requirement. Uh, And I had to do certain things. But really, they just loved the fact that I could do whatever I felt passionate about or curious about. And they encouraged that. And I think my teachers did too growing up in school. And they allowed me the permission to say, hey, this is what you want to make it. Did you ever think that that was going to be a side gig for you? Like I would have the hobby of crafting, but this is what I was going to be when I grew up? Or did you know that you were going to have to create your own path? I had no idea, really. I just thought that I would honestly be an orthodontist or a banker or something. Because that's what you saw. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are the jobs that I saw. And I loved the idea of going to the bank with my parents. And, you know, they were shuffling papers around. And I would always play school. Very important. And I would play office. Yeah. And that is something so strange to some people. (laughs) Why would you play office? (laughs) I understand. And cashier. Yes. Oh, cashier was the best. With the fake nails. I would put on the fake nails. Oh, that's so funny. I never did that. But I did have my dream of being a cashier come true. My first job was actually at McDonald's. So I was the drive-thru girl. Yeah. And I was the first person they saw and they would pay me and then I would send them to the second window. (laughs) So that dream came true. Was it all that you thought it would be and more? Uh, Let's just say that I still eat McDonald's, but I think that it was a good first job experience making minimum wage and having that understanding of the fact that, hey, you know what? There are people needed for certain jobs and that's not what I want to do when I'm older than 15. Yeah. Uh, But it was a good practice and I actually met... Uh, my one of my first boyfriends there. Yeah, he was a McDonald's cook. love story. I love it. I love it. Did you? You said your parents required that you go to college. What did you major in, and does it have anything to do with what you're doing now? So I got into Georgia Tech, uh-huh. and because my dad was an engineer, he of course was very excited about it, and I couldn't pick a major at first, but then somebody said, "Why don't you do industrial design? It's under the School of Architecture." So I did that for two years, realized that I would come to studio and spend, you know, nine hours on a project and come for critique and it would be horrible and I would Mm. get a C or a B. And I wasn't used to putting so much time and energy into something that I felt proud of. But then when you looked around the classroom, mine definitely was one of the worst projects. Mm -hmm. And it felt so disheartening. And I realized that more of my natural ability wasn't towards designing packaging that way. The practice was good for me to go through, but then I thought it'd be better if I transferred to do something that I was actually more in line with or attuned to, which was what I thought was fashion design. Mm -hmm. And so I transferred and got my degree in fashion design and marketing. And where did you go from Georgia Tech to? This little school in Atlanta that I don't even care to bring up. (laughs) is Is Atlanta home? So Atlanta was home after I moved from Chicago. That's where I was born and raised. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So your parents came to the States. They immigrated to Chicago. Well, they There's went to Virginia history. first. Okay. Yeah. It's all, there's always a little. Yeah. A little I have that pin, Virginia's for lovers. I remember yeah. that when I was little, That's just really having cute. that as sort of a souvenir. That's where they first went. And then they moved to Chicago. So when people ask where you're from, you say Chicago? 
Chicago and Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I say spent- both because I spent 15 years in Chicago and 10 years in Atlanta. Oh, a long time. Yeah. So well after finishing your degree, you stayed in Atlanta? I did, yeah. Because so the new school was a lot less challenging mm-hmm. than Georgia Tech was. Mm-hmm. And I had all this free time. And mm-hmm. because, like I said, I was bored a lot when I was little, I was fending off my boredom by getting freelance jobs. Basically, I interned at a modeling agency and I answered phones for minimum wage. And then I also was a hostess at a restaurant. And it all comes together full circle because a photographer would come into the modeling agency and he said, hey, have you ever thought about being a stylist? And I didn't even know what that was. What did he you know? see in you or what I'm were you sure. doing? Maybe oh, wow. because of, I mean, he would regularly come in and maybe because of the way I was dressed or okay. I'm not really sure, right? And those are things that you don't think about. This is a small modeling agency. I was the only girl at the front desk. There wasn't anybody in the back. The owner of the agency flew um, in during the week on some days and had an office in the back. So I was basically answering phones in this empty place. And photographers would come in and out. And sometimes models would come in. But I had no idea that I'd be sitting there and the photographer would ask me, if I wanted to do this thing that I had no idea even existed. What is that? Yeah. Yeah. And he basically said, yeah, you can choose clothes for photo shoots and you make sure they look good on models. And I was like, I can try that. Sure. So we decided to produce this first project where nobody got paid. Everybody was doing it for their portfolio. It was film back then. So (laughs) we actually got models from Elite Model Management. Uh I asked the restaurant that I was hostessing at if we could shoot in the bar area between 2 and 5 p.m. when they were closed. And they said yes. Ended up, you know, getting a hair and makeup person, three models from Elite, and we just had this awesome shoot. After the film came back, Elite saw it, and they signed me right away as a stylist. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's no small thing. (laughs) Did, okay, so it's interesting to me that you were actually producing and managing whether you know it or not, or whether you knew it at the time or not. That's what you were doing. You were starting to pull these pieces together by asking the restaurant, by pulling the outfits together, working with color, working with design. Were you like, this is it? This is my this is my space. I yeah. want to play here for a long time. Yeah, I felt like it was my jam. I love the idea of being able to choose from different designers, different stores. I had a relationship with the Atlanta Apparel Mart at that point and really was able to pull these clothes from the future seasons to shoot on these models. And I did everything from styling for catalogs to magazines to just for model tests. There was a lot of money to be made at that time because models mm-hmm. needed their shots for their portfolio. and sure. they would hire a stylist, makeup artist, and the photographer. And at that time, they had comp cards. I don't know if you remember this. This is back in the day. And you had to have this beautiful comp card because that was your calling card. And versus now, everything's digital and they don't need the same. That sort of part of the industry has been removed. I think that there's still a demand for it, but maybe people are a little bit more innovative now and they can be a little bit more scrappy with who they hire or maybe they have a friend who has a boutique or has a relationship with a store and they can borrow clothes. I think there's a lot more access now than we used to have. Yeah. 
And so maybe there is still a market for that and a demand. When I moved to LA, that wasn't my interest anymore. So, okay, I was going to ask. So you transitioned from being a stylist to are we now coming into Amy Tangerine days or not yet? Here's what happened, okay. right? So I had to have a name for my production company mm-hmm. because I was doing more than just styling. I was actually producing the whole shoots. So I was location scouting, doing all this, you know, all the things that a lot of agencies would normally handle. Mm-hmm. And I was getting the work and also even getting the checks from the client. And I was managing everything. So I was paying the models. Wow. I was paying the photographer. And this is, you know, I was 21 years old. So it's interesting. Wow. Yeah, because I had no idea. First of all, I mean, I, I'm free to talk about money, right? At that time, stylists in Atlanta were making like 500 to $1,000 a day styling. And I thought, that is amazing. I want to do that. I want to make $500 a day, yeah. right? That was great, especially sure. at 21 years sure. old. I mean, now it's great too. If you can do it consistently. Say, yeah. it's, that's it's still a great. Lot of, it's a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, if you don't live in LA, no, yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. But I think that if you are able to find something that you love and that you're good at and you find consistent work with it, then it blossoms into something. So obviously I wasn't making $500 every single day, but every now and again, I would get a job that would be a seven day long shoot and I would get $500 a day for that. And also on top of that, after I met with a client, I would say, okay, for the next time you guys come, I can actually produce the whole thing for you and then have a production so you would have a bigger cut on top of yeah that's okay so then you come to LA and you're like that's not the gig I want to be doing anymore for various reasons I actually before I moved to LA Mm -hmm. I started making arm warmers on sort of just a need for making for wearing arm warmers on photo shoots and so an arm warmer like a leg warmer but around your like yeah um, so it goes up to your elbow and it covers part of your hand and there's a thumb thumb. hole yeah yeah and then why is that needed on shoots because when I was outside in the winter in Atlanta it actually does get cold but I need my fingers to pin the clothes on the models to make everything look good so you can't really wear gloves and do that so I just asked my mom to teach me how to crochet and she did and I made these arm warmers and I wore them into a store opening party and the girls loved them and they asked me where I got them and I said that I made them and they said, can we order some for the store? So my mom actually flew down from Chicago and helped me make their order and we delivered them on a Wednesday at 3.30, I remember very vividly, and sold a pair right out of the bag. And so for these arm warmers, I priced them at $37 wholesale. The store sold them for $78 retail for a pair of hand crocheted arm warmers. And at that time, I think it was right after September 11th. And I Mm -hmm. think people were really more in tune with the fact that something is handmade, Mm. it's unique, it's it's different, and it's obviously like made locally, right? So there's something to that. And people felt the need to maybe acquire it and also get it for their friends. Sure. And, you know, at the time, I think that they really put value in the handmade. And yeah. just like we do now. I mean, yeah. I definitely do. But <laughs> there wasn't that much of it going on back then. And I think that the demand – so what happened after that was three and a half hours later, they called me and they said, Amy, you're going to think we're crazy, but we've sold out of half of them and we need more. So my mom ended up having to stay in Atlanta to help me fulfill their reorder. And then, you know, they kept on doing well. I got pressed in Women's Wear Daily, Lucky Magazine. And fast forward to 
the springtime, they said, well, what are you going to make next? And I said, I don't know, tank tops. So I started hand embroidering on these wife beater tank tops. You remember yeah, those red I tank do. tops? Yes. Yes. And we would just hand embroider these flowers that we found inspiration from a quilt, a handmade quilt. And they were all unique, one of a kind. I wholesaled them for $50. They retailed for 110 I was still doing styling at the time, so I was in New York on a shoot. And all under the Amy Tangerine name. Yeah. Wow, okay. Uh, I was at, on a shoot for the music industry, and a guy who I had worked with quite a bit, he was an A&R guy, he said, hey, I'm going out to LA next week, and I'm friends with a buyer for Fred Siegel. Do you want to give me a couple samples to take? And I said, sure. So he took them. They wrote an order for 20 tank tops. My mom was working for American Airlines at the time, so we flew out a week and a half after they had been delivered to go to Fred Siegel, and we saw them being displayed on Melrose, and out of the 20, they only had three left. Oh and gosh. I said, oh my goodness, don't you want to reorder some more? And the buyer's like, no, I want to see what you want to make next. So it was always this constant of, hey, I have to what evolve. will you make? Yeah, what are you going to make next? What will you make next. So that's interesting. Do you think that those two, both the arm warmers and the embroidered tank tops were viewed as novelty items and they were interested in Amy Tangerine as a, and we didn't have language. We didn't have that creative director lifestyle brand language back then. I think that's more, we look at it now and we're like, yeah, we know what that means. So all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm just supposed to come up with new things that, because these brands that you're mentioning, Fred Siegel in particular, they're all about what's new, right? They're, they're not looking for the person who a year later is like, I finally want one. They've moved on. So now you have to think of yourself as this person who is a creative director just producing product and design all the time. Yeah. And I never really thought of myself as a fashion designer, even though that was my degree. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a stylist so I can choose from all these fashion designers. So sure. I was like, okay, maybe I can do this line of tank tops, t-shirts, whatever, because... Fast forward a few months, a store called me and they said, hey, have you seen Glamour Magazine? Cindy Crawford is wearing one of your tank tops. Oh my gosh. And she was wearing it working out doing leg lifts. It was amazing. <laughs> and so I just thought at that point, maybe I do have a business and maybe I should think of it a, a little bit more seriously as opposed to a side hustle because the styling was probably the main gig. Sure. And then... The fashion line, Amy Tangerine, was sort of a side thing that, you know, got a little bit of momentum through the press. And so I took it seriously. And I had really amazing mentors at the time who said, you need to take this to a trade show. You need to develop a line of at least 20 to 30 pieces, take it to a trade show in New York. It was called Workshop mm -hmm. New York, and it was an international show based out of Europe. And I invested like $10,000 into going to this place, setting up a booth, yeah. uh, getting the hotel. And at the time, you know, it was like a, it was a pretty big deal. But I thought in my mind, I said, well, if I write $20,000 worth of orders, then I'll be happy. And then I will have broken even or made money, right? Yeah. But that wasn't the case. So uh, it was a four-day trade show. And luckily, on the first day, I wrote $20,000 worth of orders. Okay. And I just have to stop you. This, I feel like there needs to be a warning here. This is not how it happens all the time <laughs> because I spent time in my previous work um, taking different brands to market and it's really hard. So what do you think the success was? What do you think buyers were attracted to? 
the uniqueness of the handmade. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every piece was hand-stitched in some form or fashion. They had positive sayings on it. We had this reverse applique technique that we did for words like hope, love. Instead of the fabric being on top of it, it was below it. I think there was a lot of color involved. Mm -hmm. We upcycled t-shirts. This was a detail that I forgot to mention. We took men's damaged t-shirts and cut women's silhouettes out of them and hand-stitched them together. So we were sort of, it was that whole upcycling. Do you remember those concert t-shirts and those band shirts that they would sort of cut up the sides and do that thing? That's what we were doing, but we were doing it on a garment dyed shirt. So they were sort of buying the design. So let's say it said hope in the front. You don't know what colors you're getting. You're probably getting blues and some pinks. You don't know what you're getting. So you're getting an assortment. And they liked the uniqueness of the one-of-a-kind feel Both and the aspect. buyers and the end user. So the consumer is also getting something that's one-of-a-kind, right? And Which I didn't realize that. at that time, you know, because when you're at the trade show, they're forecasting. So we went mm-hmm. in September and they're buying for January, February right. delivery. And so we didn't know at the time that was going to be something. I think that there was a difference too in being on trend. I think at that time, denim was really big and and growing. All the denim bars popping up. Totally. And so they needed t-shirts to go along with that. Dresses were also big at that time. There was sort of like that, I don't know if you remember, Anthropology and Urban Outfitters had these like printed dresses that they would have. And it was one of those things where you could get a really nice dress for about $150 and there wasn't that mid-market before Yeah, where, you know, now that they have the fast fashion, it's a lot different. But at that time, those brands were growing too because I had a lot of friends doing private label for anthropology and we actually sold to Urban Outfitters. They were based in Pennsylvania and they only had a few locations at that time. And they weren't as huge as they are yeah. now. And so, oh, sorry. You know what? Urban Outfitters, What it was Urban Outfitters brand, but we sold to a free people store. Okay. And it was one of the first and only locations of free people. Okay. And at that time, they didn't have so huge of a brand themselves. Yeah. So they actually invited other designers to, to come, come in. And to supplement probably their own brand to, yeah. to draw people in. Okay, so you're selling these. So basically, I take the name... Seriously, I'm going to go into production. I'm, this isn't just a side hustle. I do a trade show. It's a successful trade show. This is now my business. I am full-time Amy Tangerine. I'm full-time Amy Tangerine, but Amy Tangerine has a few different aspects to it. I'm okay. still producing photo shoots. I'm still styling. That's where the bread and butter is coming okay. from. So still at that yeah. time. Okay. Yeah. But then in the new year, when I'm getting ready to ship out all these items, I have everything ready for January delivery and I'm working on, you know, figuring out how to make the UPS label and buy the boxes yeah. and do all that. You, yeah, I yeah. mean, I love that there's so many people who can relate to the production yeah. aspect of it, the fulfillment aspect of it, and then I ship everything out. Well, come February, I... I'm so afraid yeah, of what I know, you're going to say. I know, yeah. I know. I missed out on half the orders for February delivery because I couldn't produce them in time because I was doing everything that I could to get the January shipments out. And I hadn't foreseen the fact that I probably should have hired somebody with experience in the fulfillment aspect of it. So I could really focus on the creative because you know what you have to do in March is you have to show fall delivery. (laughs) March is actually even too late for fall delivery. It's it's supposed to show in February. So with a mental breakdown, basically, and a total, you know, collapse of 
any faith in mm. my future as a fashion designer because I had so many stores and people telling me that's the one thing that you can't do to stores. You can't not deliver on their open to sure. buy. They're de- sure. they're depending on your merchandise to sell so that they can order again, reorder and sell through it and then order more from you in the future. And they're I was holding really, your in, their inventory with you essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're sh- holding shelf space or yes. floor space for your goods. And so it was really devastating and I think that I felt a lot of pressure as a I think I was 22 at the time, maybe 23, I'm not even sure. I was really young. And I didn't know what to do. And the person, the company who was selling me the blank t-shirts that I was cutting up approached me and said, hey, do you want to, would it make it easier for you if you came under our umbrella and you also designed a line of t-shirts for us that basically knocked yours off and was screen printed instead of hand embroidered with a high price point? So I did that. I did that for a few months and I was still styling for them too. And I had an office. It was really weird going into an office after working on my own in my loft for so long. I still maintained ownership of my name. I just had it under their company. They took care of all the manufacturing and all the fulfillment, the shipping. It was just so much easier. And I could keep my hand sewers who I had found, who I had obviously fallen in love with because they were doing such great work and they were able to come into my place, pick up their work that they needed and then take it home to sew or I was delivering it. And it was just one of those amazing feelings of giving these people work and providing work for them that was meaningful and they were really good at. Sure. And so were you able to keep both price points, having the high-end price point, that 110 that it was retailing for, and then a mid-range price point for Actually, the screen printed? Yeah. So it was a low range and it wasn't under my name. Okay. Yeah, oh, it was okay. under a different name. And we sold to this department store called Riches mm-hmm. and they ended up being bought by Macy's okay. later. But back in the day, Riches was the department store in the South to go to. So you were fulfilling, there were multiple locations and you were doing all of that fulfillment. So you're essentially people probably viewed you as a fashion designer because you were in clothing. When do you transition into the work that you're doing now with paper and scrapbooks? And how does that happen? Yeah. So I actually moved to LA Mm -hmm. shortly after that experience because we were coming to LA back and forth to do the shoots for the catalog. And one trip on the way back to Atlanta the president said, hey, would you ever consider moving to LA? And I found myself getting really sad every time I was returning home. So I said, oh yeah, I would consider it. So I thought about it and I said, yeah, if there's an opportunity. So they wanted me to move to LA to approach small designers like myself and say, hey, buy these blank t-shirts from us and use them to create whatever you want as far as your design goes. And so I thought of it as an opportunity to seek out people like myself and partner with them. And Sharon Siegel and I, you know, she carried my t-shirts. So I got a meeting with her right away and all these different options of these blank t-shirts. I mean, I I should say too that they were coming to compete head to head with American Apparel because at that time, American Apparel was the source for blank t-shirts made in the USA. So they relocated me. I got here. I had a meeting with Sharon Siegel scheduled for a Monday. I was here for a week. And on that Friday, before that Monday meeting, the president of the company said, I think it's a conflict of interest if you keep Amy Tangerine on the side. 
So you need to make a choice. You're either all with us or you can just go off on your own. Oh my gosh. Yeah. After you moved your whole life. Yeah. And I had just. Do you feel like that was always his intention? No, I don't. I really don't. Okay. I don't think that he had planned that. I don't think that. It's just, it sort of became clear to him that this was going to be an issue. Yeah. I mean, it could have been an ego thing. I sort of think it was an ego thing. Wow. Because I was written up in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about moving to LA, and he wasn't. And so I, I think it affected him in a way that he thought that I was seen as Amy Tangerine with the t-shirt line too closely connected. Well, I even just now made the same mistake. So, I mean, I, no, I get it. I get why that <laughs> right. would be. But yeah. Sharon Siegel would not have taken the meeting with me had I, I not did. had, yeah, yeah, had I just cold called her. Well, and you're telling the story to these designers as a designer versus being a representative of the manufacturer, which is a completely different, you're kind Coming into it from a completely different point of view, right? I think so, yeah. And so that was sort of devastating at the time. But I remember calling my dad and he said, look, you're lost in the right place. You just need to stay there. Uh, what great advice. It was really good wisdom that I needed to hear, you know, through the tears. And so I did what any rational awesome. human being would do at that time. I decided to stay at the Viceroy Hotel for a week. And I didn't have a place to live. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. naturally. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was already staying there when okay. he, when okay. they let me go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's so crazy because, you know, I didn't even think that I would like file for unemployment or any of that. That just never crossed my mind. I just said, I, I don't know what to do. And my dad said, hey, you're lost in the right place. Figure it out. And so that's what I did. I ended up finally finding a, an apartment in Santa Monica. I had just bought my car that day that I was getting let go. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. So it was intense. But then, you know what? It all happens for a reason. Sure. And I was in the right place. And I thought if I wanted to start styling again, I could do that. But I knew in my mind that I didn't want to do that. So I started freelance designing. And I designed a line of t-shirts for Hudson Jeans. Mm -hmm. And through that, I was able to meet some amazing vendors and manufacturers and my embroiderer who could imitate by machine my hand stitching. So I revamped Amy Tangerine again and ended up getting sales reps in New York and sold to 250 boutiques and Bloomingdale's, Nordstrom, Neiman Marcus. So that's when it really amped up. And it was great for a few years. But then the economy, as you know, in Mm -hmm. 2008 started crumbling. I noticed it in 2007. And that's the first time I allowed myself to take a break. I was waking up working all day into the night. And then I had driven by a scrapbooking store numerous times, and I had never allowed myself to go in, to take the time to go in. And I happened to go in. I fell in love with the people. I just loved all the supplies. I took a workshop the next day, and I just fell in love with the whole hobby and the community of scrapbookers and modern-day memory keepers who were taking the time to reflect on their photos and put them together with embellishments and journaling and to tell their family stories. I just thought it was so amazing. Yeah. And I felt really connected to it. So I didn't want to start a new business. That wasn't my intention. But I think after taking a few months off, because I was so burnt out with the t-shirts, I focused on 20% of my business, which was bringing in 80% of the revenue. And that was at that time, because the boutiques were closing, I was focused on spas, yoga studios, hotels, and they were into the T-shirts, and they still had the customers. And people who were going to those places could afford the T-shirts, and for, for them, the money was not going to be an issue. Smart. So that becomes, at what point, 
your side hustle. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, it's sort of, yeah. yeah it's I interesting had- to see how you've, I mean, we all have this where we look back and we see that crazy kind of path as becoming more of a straight line, but it takes a long time. When did you start to say the scrapbooking thing isn't just a side gig for me? This is something I want to pursue. You know, I think it just evolved. I don't think it was really conscientious. It wasn't like one day I woke up and this is what I wanted. It was more of a process. And through the process of getting more involved in the scrapbooking community and seeing what was out there as far as designing products and also being on design teams where you get sent product to use your photos and showcase off the new collections of these brands. So you'll get sent a box with pattern papers and all these supplies. I wanted that. I, I said, you know what? I want to be sent free product. Sure, that yeah. sounds great. And so I applied for some design teams, got on a couple. American Crafts was one of them. And I was on their design team for a couple years. And I also decided that I wanted to scrapbook for clients because I could only scrapbook and tell so many stories about myself, my boyfriend at the time, and our two dogs. Yeah. And so I talked to my friend who... You know, I think that sometimes you just need to say stuff out loud because we were literally having sushi happy hour at Katsuya. And I said, you know what? I just want one amazing scrapbooking client I could just do their albums for. And she's like, I think I know who you need. And she called her and she answered. And the woman said, hey, I actually have a party on Friday night. Can you come scrapbook it? And I said, absolutely. And I had, was already booked for a sweet 16 on Saturday so night. Th- what that meant was not here's a box of all my memories, do something with it. It was there's an event. So you're there, you're participating in the event that you're going to scrapbook for. Yeah. So okay. there's twofold. When I first said it to her, my friend, I was saying it out loud because I wanted somebody who I could basically get a box from and scrapbook at home and then deliver a f- finished album for it, right? Yeah. But... I was also doing live scrapbooking already where I partnered with photo booth companies and they would print out the photos at these events, usually sweet 16s, weddings, bat mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs, and I would put together a scrapbook live for them at the event. So at the end, they would get a finished scrapbook, which was sort of a glorified guest book photo album yeah. mixed in because the guests would write the notes. I didn't even know that notes. was a thing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was back in, I think it was 2008 that I started that. And okay. it was great. And that was still under the Amy Tangerine brand too, only because I didn't want to go through all the paperwork of setting up a new company because I didn't know how big it would get. Yeah. But one year we actually did, I think, 37 events in a year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And now you're like, okay. I'm going to take this seriously (laughs) and I'm going to go for it. I'm going to become a scrapbook lifestyle brand. I I don't know if I said that I was going to be a lifestyle brand. I always knew that I wanted to create this life for myself and to inspire others Mm -hmm. in the process. And I didn't know what that looked like. And I think it constantly evolves. I mean, you talk to me today, I might be obsessed with, you know, painting with watercolors and then tomorrow I could be using alcohol inks and that's my latest obsession. And sometimes it's brush lettering and sometimes it's all these different things, traveler's notebooks, planners. I think it all sort of culminates into this idea that you can be creative and you can express yourself. And it's using the different mediums probably helps to inspire that in you. One of the things when we were in your studio that struck me was you had, I'm not sure what you called it, so correct me, but 
it's a journal, but then you were going, it's like a day timer essentially. Yeah, it's a planner. A planner. And then you went back through and embellished, um, a, you know, within the day, sort of things that reminded you of the day or we joked about, hopefully there'll be a happy face next to the podcast <laughs> that we're doing today. But that's interesting to me too, a way for people to, um, we all know about the gratitude journal, but it's a really interesting way to go back and pull out the pieces of life that we should celebrate or remember. Not everything, you know, is, is happy, happy that should be remembered. So um, is that part of the intention is to get people to not just view everything a- as beautiful, but also to remember these pieces of life that have been going on? So in the busyness of our everyday lives, we don't often get the opportunity to pause and reflect. And Mm -hmm. I want to be able to recognize that this life is worth living. And even though we have these events that are happening in our, you know, cell phones, and we might keep our calendar on our computers, there's something magical that happens when you put pen to paper. And I think that giving yourself just 10 minutes a day to create something, I think that's the intention of the reflectiveness of the planner, because I love that it serves as a vehicle for keeping your memories, and it doesn't take as much of an investment of time as Mm -hmm. scrapbooking does. That's what I know. That's exactly what I was drawn to. I was like, wait, I think I can do this. Yeah, everybody can. Absolutely. And you don't even have to put yourself in a position where you have to buy so many supplies. There are companies and brands out there that package everything together. Having said the you don't have to buy very many supplies and seeing that amazing supply closet that you have, I kind of want all the supplies because it's so cool. Well, you know what that's called? It's called the dream box. Yeah. And it's shocking to me that it exists. Like somebody actually manufactures this. Oh yeah. The original scrap box out of Utah makes the dream box and it is amazing. You guys can see it on my YouTube channel or probably on my Instagram. Well, and we'll definitely connect that when we, when you. Yeah. I actually have a hundred dollar code too. Amy Tangerine. Yeah. I'll give you the link. Okay. That's awesome. Did you hear that Liberty listener? So many good (laughs) things coming out of this. So you were talking about um, this creative life that you want to inspire in other people. And by looking on your Instagram, it's clear that you're intentional about living that life and inspiring that in others. What did a platform like Instagram do for you in telling that story? Because it's such a visual product. I started on Instagram back in 2011, Mm -hmm. and I used it for the filters and the borders. And I don't know if people remember that, but they Mm -hmm. were the only, one of the only services that allowed you to filter your photographs. So I would do that and print out the photos for my scrapbooks. So you weren't even using it to compile a portfolio of your life or your work. It was really just so that you could use the filter to print out to have for yeah. your scrapbook. Yeah, I think That's so. Awesome. And I guess it was a portfolio. It was sort of this online visual scrapbook of moments. Yeah. But I didn't intentionally start that because of it. A friend of mine actually showed it to me when we were on a beach trip with my college friends. And it was a way for us to keep in touch and to send photos to each other, or not really send photos to each other, but sort of post a photo, and then everybody could see it. Because at that time, too, I was sort of over Facebook and the 
massive amount of sharing that was happening with both photos and links and videos. Yeah. And I don't even know if Facebook had videos at that time, but news articles, you know, there was just so much. And I feel like there was an overabundance of it. Yeah. Whereas Instagram was this platform where all you could see was, were pictures. Yeah. And at that time when I signed up, you had, to, it was literally instant. You know, you couldn't post a, a later gram. You couldn't even upload from your camera roll. You had to take the photo in the app. Yeah. And so obviously a lot has changed since then, but that's what I was using it for. So I didn't have any intention of making it part of my job. And that didn't actually really happen until probably and maybe 2015 okay. when I was approached by brands to do collaborations with them. And that's because they saw you featuring this piece of life in a way that was accessible to other people, was probably appreciated by other people, and and whatever visual story you were telling, they're like, I want a piece of that. And brands saw that and started to collaborate with you. Had you been doing any sort of collaborations before then? I had my collaboration with American Crafts. Okay. So I have a scrapbooking collection with them, and I've had it since 2011. And I was very intentional about making sure that the scrapbookers who were buying my products and using them had something unique and different that wasn't available in most Elsewhere. scrapbooking stores. Yeah. And we can access that where? Where can we get all of your products? So scrapbook.com and Simon Says Stamp okay. are my two favorite online sources. And then if there are local scrapbooking stores near you, I encourage you to go in and try to shop with them because they're very alive. few and far between. Yeah. yeah. I think that I heard this astonishing fact that when I first started back in 2011, there were over, I think, 4,500 independent scrapbooking stores that were doing really good business. And now I think there's less than 600 wow. in the U.S. Oh, that's, it's that's really a sad. pretty stark drop. Yeah. Do you think that's because people are just able to bring it home and YouTube what they want to see? And I know they're missing the, the kind of in real life community that was developed by that. But do you think that's why? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. And I think people are probably, you know, less into the tangible aspect of actually scrapbooking in the yeah. traditional sense. And then also the influx of being able to order it online. Yeah. Uh, so I think it it's a combination. Then. Yeah. I mean, you know, rent in LA and throughout Los Angeles is really expensive throughout California. And yeah. for a while there, even with the local scrapbooking stores, as they were closing, the closest one was an hour away. And yeah. we live in this metropolitan city. You know, I think that they also the be, larger. Yeah. I was trying to think stores. of one that's near us, and yeah, it, I, if it exists, it's it's a good half hour from where I live. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not something I would frequent. So, so Instagram started to 2015. You started to see brands coming to you and collaborating. So now that becomes so you have a scrapbooking line. You've got the Instagram collaborations. You're creating your own product that people can see on YouTube, and you have a book. When did the book come into play? So I wrote the book in 2016, and I published it – I self-published it in 2017. And the book kind of came on as a project because we were trying to expand our family, and I had had my first miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where I am always – so much of a doer that I thought that the next nine months were going to be, you know, planning for this baby and then the baby would come. And so I had set out on this life plan for the next few months of 
you know, doing things that had a lot to do with prepping for a second child. And so when the miscarriage happened, I sort of took a step back and paused and said, well, what do I really want to do for the next few months of my life since this is not going to be, I'm not going to be pregnant. And I know it sounds really strange, but I needed a project. I needed Mm -hmm. to birth something. And it turned out that it was a self-published book called Craft a Life You Love, 25 Ways to Infuse Intention, Creativity, and Fun into Your Everyday. And I hired a book cover designer. I hired an editor. I hired an interior layout designer. And I was supposed to launch it December of 2016, but I just couldn't get it together. And for some reason, it didn't come out until January of 2017. But it turns out it was a blessing because three weeks later, it was number one in two categories on Amazon. Oh, wow. Yeah. What were the categories? Do you remember? I think Arts, yeah, and coloring books, adult oh coloring gosh. books, which were huge, have been huge. Yeah, that says a lot. Yeah, and how has that changed things for you? Publishing a book is a big deal. Yeah, what thanks. It-, it was it was really cool. It was great, and I think that my audience really needed something that was a little bit different. I mean, mm-hmm. now it's sort of in the self help category. Yeah. I I joke yeah. about how it's really more mm-hmm. of a self reflection yeah, tool, sense. right? And I think at the time, that's what I needed. And so I was telling and sharing my stories, and there were practices in there for the reader to be able to hear my side of the story and then infuse these questions into their own lives and say, hey, how can I bring more joy and happiness into my everyday? And how can I make sure to take 10 minutes and have permission to craft a life that I love in the ways that are important to me? Uh, So after... It hit number one. I actually got approached by several publishers, and that's when I got an agent, and she auctioned off my book, and I signed a contract with Abrams. That's awesome. Yeah. I guess they published the expanded edition Mm -hmm. in 2018. It came out April 10th, and I had the book launch party in... San Francisco at Pinterest headquarters. And it was just a small, intimate gathering of like 30 people. And it was so fun. And the book has done, you know, pretty well. And it's in color and people are still loving the idea of Craft a Life You Love. And I've made it into a podcast too. I think the more we can encourage people to really take the time for themselves to cultivate the sense of wellness and Mm. purpose and, you know, follow their passions. And it's okay. You know, whether you like baking or knitting or whatever hobby you have, I think it's about bringing to light the fact that your hobbies matter. And I hear that in all the things that you've talked about with regard to this part of your career. We've talked about lots of parts, but it feels more like when you were talking about the book categories, it feels more wellness to me than anything else that somebody who wouldn't consider themselves creative or an artist might miss out on the opportunity if it were only in those categories. But if it's something that's like, wait, take a minute to reflect on what was, what is, and, and even what can be. I mean, I think as as you look at some of those weeks and months that go by in the planner in particular, I think, oh gosh, that would give me perspective on what I want next or where I need to fill in the blanks because too much time is being spent here or here. 
So I'm going to put it in the category of wellness. If, if I had power, that's where I would put well, it. Well, that's where it is now. So at Barnes oh, & Noble, awesome. it's in the self-help personal See? development section. <laughs> that's all, It makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world to me. Okay. I want to transition us a little bit. And thank you for taking the time to tell us that story because I think for so many listeners, it's important to see where we start in one place and where we end up. And this isn't even where you're going to end up. There's so much more. So I know if we come back and do another podcast five years from now, this is going to be another blip along this trajectory for you. But I know that there are people listening that want some advice about pieces of the Amy Tangerine pie. So I'm going to ask you a few questions that help them regardless of the industry that they're in. One of the things that you do, and we haven't touched on it yet, but you do workshops, digital online workshops. Do you do in real life workshops yeah. as well? So I'm going to focus on the digital ones for this question, but I want to ask you that as, uh, about the in real life ones. So many people have some expertise, something that they can teach, and they're looking for an online platform that will help to sell tickets, amass an audience, um, distribute the content, save the content so they can reuse it. There's so many things that these different platforms provide. When you're doing your online workshops, what are you looking for when you partner with that online platform? Yeah, so I think there's so many companies out there now providing online content that is, it's a way for people to be able to take whatever expertise or class that they want to share. And you can do it on your own or you can partner with somebody like Skillshare or Blueprint. There's so many different ones. What I did was, honestly, I think that I was approached by several of them because I was doing online classes and in-person classes. Where were you doing those before they approached you? So there used to be some scrapbooking sites that are no longer. And so that's where I was doing it primarily. And there was this platform, it's still around, called Big Picture Classes. Mm -hmm. And I did a couple of workshops with them. And I also just started, well, in 2010, I believe it was, I decided that I would just try an online class and just have it on Blogspot. And so the limit was 100 people, and I hit 100 people. So I I said, okay, well, that's all I could take. So that's all I did, right? And it was just a matter of trying something and seeing how it would work. I think what I would recommend to people, if you're looking to partner with somebody like a Skillshare or do your research and see where you go and where you like to take online classes as well Mm -hmm. and see if that's a good fit for the material that you want to teach. Does it matter who else is on there? Like, did you look at, okay, who am I going to be on a shelf space next to? Yeah, I do. And I think because mine is so niche and I have my own style, even when it comes to scrapbooking and the techniques that I use, this girl, Paige Evans, who's a friend of mine, Mm -hmm. she has had so many classes on big picture classes at this point, right? I think she's on number 20 something. And I think that if you can cultivate a relationship with a platform and maintain that, that's great. But what I did was I went with Brit & Co. for one of my yeah. first mm-hmm. online classes. And it was a great experiment in seeing how they shot the content, how they produced it, how they helped guide the people through and how the course was being laid out. Sometimes they're self-paced workshops 
and sometimes they are live workshops. It depends on what kind of content you want do to share. Do they dictate that or do you? I think it's a, it's I, a, it's the, a collaboration. You work with Brittany yes. to decide what's yeah. best for that And I audience. think that that's how I work best. I know that some people like more of a format and they can say, hey, I can fit into this format very easily because this is what I have to teach. This is how I have it structured. Mm. For me, it, it's easier to work with something that is structured but also has flexibility. And it probably depends on the thing that you're teaching. I think right? so. Yeah. yeah. And I th- I know that blueprint for craft classes, that's where a lot of my expertise is. And that's sort of where I see this whole thing going as far as if you're looking for a class on baking or a class on embroidery, like there's different platforms that have those types of workshops. Skillshare is one that I really like because it's a monthly membership type of setup, but the cut for the teacher is probably less. It depends on the sign up and the structure and the commission structure. You know, find out what's important to you and how you want to structure the deal and how much money you're looking to make. Because if you're already teaching in-person workshops and you have the course curriculum, sometimes partnering with an online platform will get you more eyeballs that you wouldn't have access to. If they have a huge mailing list, maybe you're getting a ton of access and you're maybe not getting as much money for it if you did it on your own, but you're having so much more of the audience that you're... It becomes a volume issue and it's also just a great way to distribute your brand name. Totally. Because that's not the only thing in your case, that's not the only thing you have to sell. They could come into your website and buy your book, they could buy product. There's so many other things in terms of your brand that they can engage with. So those things become important too. How much do you charge for your classes? And, I, and, and I'm asking this more of as a question for those listening. Like, is it based on the amount of time you put into the class or is it the amount of minutes that they're watching? What does that look like? Yeah, so I think that pricing is really tough because I have always wanted it to be accessible. But at the same time, if you're giving a lot of value, I think more of a value based pricing model is probably better. But you have to decide that for yourself. You know, if you have a class, I have a brush lettering class on my website now that's a modern twist on brush lettering that we offered at a really, really good price of $29. Okay. And we did it that way because it's self-paced. I'll pop in there every now and again, but I'm not giving you any guidance or structure or personal attention. How do you pop in there? Uh, and to the board, like okay. the, the platform has, you know, people can leave comments and I can reply to them. Okay. But because when I first launched it in 2016, it was m- motivation to try to have our own platform for workshops. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to price it very competitively and also at a point where people would find tremendous value in it, but not have to sink in hundreds of dollars. You know, it's not like five hours of video. It's more snippeted and really sort of structured in a way that you can take the class in two hours and you can Mm -hmm. watch the videos and print out the handbook. And then you can work on it 10 minutes a day and really see progress. And that's the encouragement that I wanted to provide for that $29 price point. So if you're pricing your workshop at, let's say, between $29 to $59, right? 
and you have 100 people sign up, then you do the math and say, sure. is that enough? Or if you think that you can get 1,000 people to sign up, which is what I thought with a brush lettering class, that's why I didn't price it any higher. I mean, I think the value there is like more of an $89 class, sure. but we really wanted to make it accessible. And it wasn't my bread and butter. That's uh, yeah, the thing, it, right? I was going to say, it ends up becoming part of the sales funnel, depending on how you're looking at that. So I think that's great advice for people who are listening. It's a question I get often. People will say, I don't know how to price my online class. And some of it depends on the partner and they sort of dictate that for you. But it's nice to go in with a sense of what is this need to be in order for it to be meaningful for me. So yeah. That's and that's really what you helpful. have to figure out, right? Yeah. 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 The other thing I wanted to, add, well, there's so many other things I wanted to ask you, but in terms of Instagram, which is a it's a, it feels like a beast right now. And everybody talks about the algorithm and it's not the same. And what do I do? And you're somebody who's done a really great job with both amassing a following, but also really engaging that following. What do you want to say to that person who's frustrated with Instagram and doesn't know a, how to grow their audience, or I think B, how to really meaningfully engage. Because I always say, and I try and pay attention to this myself, like, don't forget the people who are following you. Don't, don't, it's not all about just bigger numbers. Don't forget those people who've raised their hand and said, hey, I'm paying attention, do something for me or say something to me. What do you want to say to those people? I think you have to ask yourself why. Mm. And that's a very big question as far as why do you want more followers? Is it because you want to get to 10,000 so that you can have the swipe up in stories? Uh, why do you want to get to a certain threshold? You know, what is your motivation behind that? And really dive deep into why you want that. Is it because so-and-so has 50,000 followers and you know that they got a brand deal for $1,000 or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Ask yourself why. Because every time I get into that mindset where I don't have control. We don't have control over Instagram, okay? Sure. It could go away tomorrow. And just like the algorithm, it bothers me, but only to the point where I'm very cognizant of I need to do what I have to to make the content as good as possible, right? And to make sure that I'm putting out what I want to share. And it comes down to asking yourself, hey, is it is this the reason that I want to have an Instagram to make money? Or do I really want to just share a part of my life with my following? Mm -hmm. You know, and for me, it's always been more of sharing my life and sharing what's going on because mm -hmm. I am a scrapbooker and I've had a blog since 2007 when I first started scrapbooking because yeah. that's what scrapbookers did. That's how they shared their lives. And I think that if you want it for a visual journal, visual diary, then that's fine. And if you want to get a couple brand deals here and there, that's great. But I don't know how to operate from a place of saying, I want to make money off of Instagram. That's That was never my intention. And I'm so glad I didn't come from that place because yeah. I know people who have started their Instagrams or really cultivated their Instagrams and shaped it so that they can make money. Yeah, and it's very evident. And, you yeah. know, people can see it. And sure. even if they have large followings, it's just not something that's true to me because I have so many other things going on. And I'm sharing my life, right? It's more of a creative lifestyle and I want to show different aspects of it. That's another reason I don't only have watercolor quotes. I share a little bit about my family, about our travels, about our home, creative projects, planner stuff. There's a whole range of ways that I share and things that I share on my 
Instagram. Yeah. But for people who are really cultivating their presence online, Instagram was a couple years ago and a great way to start. And people saw, you know, followings grow if somebody else mentioned them. It, we're not in that time anymore, yeah. unfortunately. And there were giveaway structures that people were doing, like the loop following yep. and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. It doesn't really work that well anymore if you want – and plus, like, why do you want to gain so many followers? Yeah. I mean, you have to think about why. At a certain point, I really wanted to hit 100,000. That yeah. was a goal for me, okay? And I don't know why. It was because I was kind of stuck at, like, the 75,000, 80,000 range. And I was like, oh, if I could just get to 100K, that'd be great. Did but, you think it would affect your bottom line or was it all about the Instagram number? I think – just a goal. It, it was just a random goal, but I yeah. did think that I would get bigger brand deals after the 100K hit. And I think that that happened, but I also think it it happened at the same time that a lot of brands were starting to do these collaborations. Sure. So all these things were happening at the same time. And I think a brand deal really has to be fitting to your feed, your or audience. again, the audience can see right through things. I and think like, so. Where, why is she doing this? Right. And yeah. I think also sometimes too, I mean, I explain it on stories sometimes. It's like, hey, you guys, you know, I'm giving you free content. I've been giving you free content for many, many years, okay? Yeah. And if you're going to complain about, you know, a sponsored post here and there, I get it. I don't like the sponsored posts sometimes either, but you have the choice to scroll through and scroll past. You don't have to double tap it and you don't have to take the time to complain so loudly. I remember the negative comments used to bother me. I mean, they're few and far between, yeah. but it used to really bother me when somebody would express disdain for somebody who, let's say, is making money off of their Instagram in a way that they feel is authentic to them, okay? So I know a fashion blogger who got really upset because she was doing a lot of these fashion posts and somebody said, well, you used to blog about your uh, the stuff that you were making at home and your food and all these other things and now you're only doing fashion. Well, that's the direction that she wanted to go in, Yeah, you know? And yeah, people and have people to evolve. Yeah, people don't realize. I think, it, I think we're getting there, but we don't, you know, no one complains when television shows had commercials, we just knew that was the price we paid for getting free TV. Now, as everything is streaming, we have to deal with, oh, now we have to pay for each of those things. And so we're kind of starting to get a, our head, I think, around what does it mean to create content and how do we, what's the price we want to pay? The price of watching ads or the price of foregoing that and pulling out money from our pocketbook? And I think people are starting to understand that a little bit. You talked about collaborations, and I want to touch on this because it's something that a lot of people, a lot of brands are trying to figure out, how do I collaborate with other brands who are paying me for that collaboration? And also, how do I collaborate with other brands where we're coming together to share the cost, the audience, the whatever? And it's a, it's a funny word because I think it's, it gets misused. And often people will even approach us and say, hey, we have an idea for a collaboration. And in the end, I'm like, I don't see what we're getting out of this. I see you asking for me to do something or our advice or something. You know, How do you approach when somebody says, hey, I have a collaboration idea, Amy, how do you say yes or no? What do you decide? What do you hold up as being 
valuable or important before you say yes? So I actually have a system that I've developed called the three Fs. Mm. And I decided that they were the most important things to me when it comes to working with other people and also in life in general. So the three Fs for me are freedom, fulfillment, and fun. So if I'm being approached by a brand, they have to at least... uh, Meets two of the three. I'm looking at your yeah. fingers, but yeah. They have to satisfy two of the three uh-huh. criteria. So either it has to buy me freedom, which means pay a lot, mm-hmm. or be really fun mm-hmm. and be really fun. Mm-hmm. Or it has to be very fulfilling if they don't have a budget and be fun. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And so I think there's different ways to work around that. And everybody should decide for themselves how they want to value their time and their kind of relationship with the collaboration or the brand because I've been approached by so many brands that I've said no to and you know one of them I I think there's a lot of (laughs) people doing this but at one time feminine products Mm -hmm. were being touted on Instagram right Mm -hmm. I had no desire I said I told them you could offer me five figures, multiple five figures and I still would, would say no to it because I just didn't feel like that's what I wanted mm. to share with my audience yeah. about feminine hygiene products. And yeah. other people feel differently and sure. they are open. And there was just no way for me to incorporate the cute packaging yeah. with even like a watercolor quote. I could yeah. not wrap my brain yeah. around it. So I yeah, said I, no yeah. multiple times. You <laughs> yeah. know, it was just one of those yeah. things. But then I would see the brand at in bathrooms at a convention or a conference. That's where it fits to me. Right. Okay. It doesn't fit on my Instagram. So just judging and deciding how you want to work together. And if you're going to approach a brand like you or somebody else, then always ask yourself, what do you bring to the table? Because a true collaboration is 50-50. And that's not necessarily monetary or anything that you can actually measure sometimes, but it has to feel like a give and take. It has to feel very uh, mutual. It has to be of mutual benefit. I'm glad you're saying that because usually what I say is not being somebody that's a a pro at what collaborations can or can't be, but I often say just put yourself in the other person's shoes and approach whatever deal or pitch you're putting together from that point of view. If you can show that value, why they should do that, and they even see that in you, it means so much. Like, oh, okay, they've actually considered me or the brand. And then I can say yes or no based on what the value is, but um, I'm I'm glad you backed up, but or or I'm probably backing it up. But I think that's really helpful for so many people who are trying to figure that out. Now you talked about your dogs. We know you have a son. You're busy running this life. We've seen the studio. You live on a, a compound of sorts. There's buildings all over with things to do. How do you, through apps or through maybe even some of your journals or planners, how do you sort of, what are some of the business hacks that you rely on every day that you can tell these busy entrepreneurs or soon-to-be entrepreneurs that are listening that, you know, what's your advice for some of these tools that they should be using? Yeah, so my favorite meditation app, and I know that people have been talking about meditation for a long time, uh, but right now is Insight Timer. 
I love Insight Timer. So that's my part of my morning routine now, even if it's just 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I really think it's important for people to cultivate the sense of mindfulness around what they're doing because we can get so caught up mm-hmm. and we can burn ourselves out. You know, things mm-hmm. could change. We just really have to be present with ourselves first yeah. and prioritize that. And I also love, there's an app called Plan, mm-hmm. P-L-A-N-N. Oh. And that's what I use for my Instagram planning. We yeah, and know you can, that. Yeah, okay. and it's and they also have a new desktop version that just recently came out. It's this amazing girl from Australia who started it, and you can plan out your posts in advance, and you know do all the things that you yeah. need to do. You can even plan your stories. Oh wow! Yeah, and. <laughs> Uh, there's somebody in the room who's planning some of those right now. So she's, um, and how is it different than some of the ones that are out there? Because there are some other planning um, platforms out there. What's the thing, maybe one thing that's really unique about this one? I really like the fact that obviously it's a woman founder yeah, and she's that. amazing. And also the fact that you can, they were the first ones to do stories. And I don't okay. know if the other ones have to, but it's very also seamless in the integration part of it. So you can move things around in your grid to see how it'll look. And there's just uh, this beautiful kind of, I don't want to say plain because that's not the right word, maybe simple Uh aesthetic to it. Yes. (laughs) And obviously, since I have so much going on and you saw my studio, it's chaos. I feel like I need those very clean apps that integrate what I'm doing. And there's also another uh, desktop app called Grids that I use to comment back because you can actually check your DMs on Grids. And I think it's like $12.99 one-time fee. And you can check your DMs and reply to them on the computer because I'm trying to get off of my phone more because I have this pain in my thumb area right here that I need to work on. And every time I get a massage, I ask them to do it a little, you know, more. Yeah. Well, longer because they kind of just do it a little bit. So I have them work on my hand and I, I know that it comes from being on my phone because even if I scrapbook all day, I don't have that pain. It's from the phone and the thumbs texting or typing. So I try to do as much of the things that I can do on the computer right. as possible as opposed to the phone. And another thing is I love my Google Calendar. Even though I'm a planner person, Google Calendar just kind of rules my world. Well, that's where it can be ugly and then you can make all the pretty things that totally. are on your planner. I love that. And where do we get your planner, by the way? Oh, so it's a Be Happy Box collaboration and it's with the Happy Planner and we can link it below. Okay. It's called Be Happy Box. Okay. And it's- we'll make sure to get all those listeners so that you can have access to all of the things that Amy's sharing with us today. So there are stats about women launching into kind of entrepreneurship at record pace. We're outpacing men two to one, but we're not having the same rate of success. And some of that is just numbers. But some of it, I think, is a lack of support, a lack of money, a lack of even kind of social support. Like, I think depending on your age, maybe, thinking that that's something that you can do and go out outside of what was a probably a more formal trajectory. What do you think it is and what do you think we need to do to change that statistic? Gosh, I love the women supporting women movement. Mm -hmm. I think that I've always felt that, you know, and I don't know if it's because – Look, I'm not immune to negativity, but it's just something that I don't focus on. Ever since I moved to LA, that was something that I really made conscientious 
in my mind to do away with the drama. Yeah. And I think life is so hard as it is. We don't need to complicate things more. And I think that feminine energy sometimes does that naturally. We want to create more of this chaos around something when really it's just a simple fact of, okay, well, what do you want to do? What's the goal? What's the bottom line? Here are the facts. Look at the facts. And I think Mm -hmm. men are just more capable of doing that. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I'll get emotional about something and I'll share it with JC and he'll be like, uh, you just need to get over that. And I'm like, wait, yeah. what? And JC, what do you mean? JC my is not Jesus Christ, it's your husband. <laughs> oh, yes. But we, we can, for those who are listening, we'd like for you to consider that as well if that's he, important he has to you. that yeah. much wisdom. That's, no. a, that's so, awesome. Yes. But for a female founder and somebody who doesn't really think of myself as this role model for other female entrepreneurs, mm. I've really had to bring into light my strengths and qualities that I have and not be afraid to share them. Uh, I think that's another thing that we sometimes do because we're so afraid of sharing our knowledge when really all that does is make everybody grow at a huge level that we can't even fathom, you know, as opposed to withholding information and keeping things secret. I think we need to share those things so that we can have experiences with other women so that they can have enough inspiration and validity to go out and do what they want. I think the belief in yourself is something that you can pass on and spread. And the enthusiasm is something that I think that we have an advantage over because I can go into a meeting and feel enthusiastic and not feel like I have to downplay my excitement for something. Whereas I think men tend to have to like tone it down a little bit. Granted, I'm not in corporate America though, you know, so I don't I'm literally sitting in a V-neck T-shirt and a skirt that that might be a little That's too adorable. short. It's a, it's no, <laughs> it's adorable. It's, but you know, it's got frills and stuff. So I think from a point of view of when you're starting your own thing, you really have to decide what matters to you mm-hmm. and what are the important things. You know, take your top three values that are important. I mean, for me, a, cultivating a sense of community is really important, and I'm able to do that through scrapbooking and through creative arts because so many people, when they come to my in-person classes, they feel as though something has been lifted from their mm-hmm. shoulders yeah. because they're able to share their excitement for stickers with like-minded people. There's a conference that I go to called Craftcation Conference in Ventura that people come out and they they come from all over the country and all over the world, really, And they are just so excited to be around people who get them. They don't have to explain their quirks and their weirdness about being obsessed with certain hobbies or taking things a different route, not the traditional route of starting a business. You know, I have never had a business plan. I know that sounds awful because I've been in business for 20 years and I have never had a business plan. And But what I've heard you say, whether it's your three Fs or even just you advising us to pick the top three things that are important is that there's always there's always kind of a center. There's always a north for you. So maybe it's not a plan, which I would recommend we do when we raise money, but I'm not sure we need it outside of raising money. I think a plan of action, a plan that sort of gives us um, a sense of where we're going is what, what really what we're looking for. And I want to just say that you telling your story in the beginning, especially about Georgia Tech and then going on to fashion and really being able to tune into yourself is going to mean a lot to so many of our listeners. So thank you for being honest and then and and transparent, but also when you talked about women sharing what they have and not sort of withholding, I think 
people like you are able to do that and we learn from people like you because you don't have a feeling or a sense that it's going to run out. You know that you can generate more and we have to believe that we can generate ideas and we can generate kind of our own expertise, if you will, that we, we're not limited. There's not 10 things in us and if we give them away, we're sort of out. That They are coming from within us. And if we can't continue to feed that creatively and in community, I think that we can we will see the evidence of that and not feel like we have to withhold that so much. Yeah, and nobody benefits from you playing small ever. So go ahead and share your gifts. And I think abundance actually comes back tenfold. Yeah, I love that. Nobody ever benefits from you playing small. That's great. So this is where we do what we call our quick six. So I'm going to ask you six questions and just top of mind, tell us what comes up for you. So first, do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? Definitely flex schedule. Do you like vacationing in the mountains or the beach? Beach. Working from home or office? I think I almost said home office because you're back there, but yeah. I'll say from home or uh, outside of home. Like, home. Okay. If you guys could see her studio, you would know why that's the case. <laughs> I think this is the hardest question. Thai or Mexican food? Oh my gosh. Can I have both? See? Finally. <laughs> okay. Hot? Does it have to be hot? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. But if you had to pick, I'm not going to let you go. Oh, right now it'd be Mexican. Okay, Mexican. It's also summer. Mexican always. You know what though? Have you been to Thailand? No. There's nothing like Thai food in Thailand. So if if I'm choosing here and now, I'm in LA and Mexican Mexican. food. Yeah. Okay, so it's location specific. Yeah. Okay, that's fair (laughs) enough. And then our podcast is called Liberty Sessions. Our brand is Liberty. Our URL is Liberty for her. What does it mean for you when you hear that word? What does it mean for you to be liberated? I think liberation means freedom to access and connect with who you truly are and to bring those gifts to the table and to take your seat and to share those mm-hmm. abundantly. Oh, so succinct. Oh my gosh, I love I that. I could go on though. Uh, no, I'm sure <laughs> he was good. trying to make it succinct. <laughs> no, that's so great. And I think something that a lot of people... I mean, for you to access it, to, that you do have a seat at the table and then to share it. I mean, that's sort of all of it, right? And utilizing all of who we are. Amy, thank you for this time. Thanks for sharing your story and your home and your studio. It's thank been you. lovely. It's Absolutely. been wonderful. Liberty listeners, we will have, as promised, all of the links. Stay tuned for the stories and you'll have to check out on IGTV. We'll have two minutes with Amy that you can watch and see exactly what this turned into. Thank you so much. Bye. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Windham and music by Jordan Flower.